good Palm Sunday to you. This is the first day of the greatest week of the year. Just in case you didn't know that, that's an objective fact that this is the greatest week of the year. And um, I'm always excited about this time of year. But while you're turning, and by the way, it's on page 940 in the Pew Bible if you don't have your Bible with you. Let me start by telling you what I found out in studying this text. Thomas Schreiner said, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is one of the most difficult texts in the whole letter. Richard Longnecker said this passage has frequently been viewed as an extremely difficult passage to interpret. And the good doctor himself, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, Now this, it is generally agreed, is one of the most difficult passages, not only in Romans, but in the whole of Scripture. So, I walked right into this one. I even asked for it. Um, once again, I done messed up, A-A-Ron. Um, this is a passage that does have what initially seems to be superficial statements, even silly, or at least beneath the gravity of Holy Scripture. But, of course, that's the error that I and others make when you don't go digging for the gold that's to be found. Although only eight verses, it's hard to get a handle on quickly, almost impossible in the just two or three hours we have this morning. <laughs> what? So please, please stay with me as to quote Will Penny, who only Bruce knows who that is. You've got a blind hog trying to root up an acorn of truth. But first, let's remember our background and setting. After his greeting and introduction in the first 15 verses of chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, Paul states and establishes the theme of the whole book of Romans, the gospel of God, the gospel of God. That is the power of God for salvation of all mankind. That gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and it is through faith. That is Romans' fundamental proposition, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then immediately, in chapter 1, verse 18, he goes into the negative aspect of this theme, the need for the gospel. If the gospel reveals the positive righteousness of God, then it must be contrasted with the negative unrighteousness that opposes God. That is the unrighteousness of man against which God's wrath is revealed. This gospel and its universal need is premised on the fact that all of mankind is under the wrath of God for their unrighteousness. I'll repeat that. This gospel and its universal need is premised on the fact that all of mankind is under the wrath of God for their unrighteousness. Paul then sets out to prove that accusation, namely that all mankind is guilty and in need. In fact, it's our only hope, and it only comes through faith. So, I want us to do something this morning that I think helps get a picture of what God is saying through Paul in this first paragraph of chapter 3 to help us grasp the background and the setting 
I want us to get into a courtroom mindset. So I want you to picture a courtroom and all the elements thereof. God is the judge. There is no jury. All of mankind is the accused and on trial. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is the prosecuting attorney. And what a prosecutor he is. I mean, he would make Perry Mason look like a novice. And here again, if anybody other than Bruce doesn't know who Perry Mason is, you need to watch some episodes. The man lost one case out of 271. That's pretty good, isn't it, Bruce? <laughs> so, um, courtroom scene, get that in your mind. So, after delivering the theme and its essential need, Paul immediately begins the trial. So, I'm talking about from verse 18 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3. All of mankind is brought before the bar of justice and evaluated. First, in Romans 1, 18 to 32, we see the group known to the Jews as the pagan Gentiles. We would see this group today as immoral people. And as we know, Jesus makes it clear in his Sermon on the Mount that we all can be guilty of these same sins even if just done internally in our hearts. The evidence is overwhelming that they are guilty. Romans 1 verse 32 says that they are worthy of death. Second, in Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 16, Paul brings in the moral people before the bar. Again, we can all identify with ourselves here in this group as among those who practice self-righteous sins of morality. Again, the evidence is that they're guilty. Verse 16 says that God judges the secrets of our hearts through the standard of Jesus Christ. Third, as Josh taught us so well last week, what a great message from Romans chapter 2, verses 17, 29. Paul brings in the Orthodox Jews, or for us, the religious people, before the bar of justice. Once again, the evidence points to a guilty verdict. Verse 29 says that judgment is based on the internals of our soul. True religion is inward, and true circumcision is that of the heart, which are both by the Spirit. So, all of mankind, by all the categories of sin they practice, appear to be guilty before the righteous God. All of us are condemned and under the wrath of God. We all stand to be convicted and found guilty. But we hear objections. We hear objections. We can hear the thoughts and souls of natural men cry out with seemingly legitimate objections. This judgment is simply not fair. And worse, the judge himself may not be unbiased. He may be unfair. That is where we've come to in Romans chapter 3. We've come to the objections. After Paul's presented his case, now we hear the objections. They're the rebuttals, the protests, or excuses that are raised against God's review and his findings of all mankind, his sin, and his unrighteousness. So, if you're looking at Romans chapter 3, verse 1, we'll start there. 
then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Holy Father, we need you. This is your people gathered in your place at your appointed time to worship and to hear from you. Please, Lord, empower your word by your spirit and grant us understanding faith, obedience, and transformation by it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We must remember, all of Paul's teaching is not in the Bible. I think it's easy for us to drift into that. He is by far the most prolific of all the New Testament writers, authoring 13 of the 27 books. But there are four other letters that are referenced in the Bible itself. And so I'm sure there's much more of his teaching that was recorded, and most of it, as we know, remained verbal. You know, over the years of his ministry, think of the volume of teaching that he had. So his doctrine was well-developed and well-known, could have been, by both his opponents and those who, who supported him. So when we look at this text that's before us, we can simply divide it into four sets of two questions each. Four sets of two questions each. Each, each pair of verses, one through eight, each of the four pairs, you see objections and then you see answers. And so we begin with the first set, first slide. The premise from Romans chapters 1 and 2 is that we know both Jews and Gentiles will be judged impartially by God without favoritism and without any consideration given to ethnicity or external religious practices. So they were told circumcision is of no value if it's not of the heart or if you transgress the law, and that being a Jew has no advantage over not being one if you're not one inwardly. So, two questions. Question number one, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or in being religious? I mean, isn't that a logical thing to ask? Two, second question, what value is there in circumcision or in any religious ceremony or religious tradition. In summary, 
What good is religion? What good is it? Doesn't the objection seem logical and rational from what's come before? If the externals don't matter when it comes to the judgment and wrath of God, what's the point? What good is it? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, God declares, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and, it, and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers. So we hear mankind comes up and says, Paul, if physical circumcision or baptism does not contribute to our salvation, then what value is it? If being a Jew or a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not guarantee a blessing, and if the law merely brings a knowledge of sin, but it can't save, if Jews or religious people are judged the same way as Gentiles or the unreligious, then what good is it being a Jew? What good is it being religious? And then we see Paul say, much in every way, great in every respect. To begin with, or first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, how can Paul respond the way he does? Because he says, great in every way, and so you think he's about to list a whole bunch of stuff. But what does he do? He gives one. He gives one, and he doesn't even give one for the value for circumcision. He gives one advantage of being a Jew. But that one is very important and very primary. In fact, the root word he uses is proton. It means most primary. And the word for oracles of God is the root logia, which is a plural form. We've all heard the root logos for word. Logia is a plural form of a derivative of that that specifically refers to the words of God that are spoken. It's used in secular Greek to refer to the words that come from the mouth of Jesus himself. So it's the very words of God from the mouth of God. Think about that. So it could be a reference to the whole Old Testament here or just the promises that relate to the salvation of Israel. Either way, the point is they were entrusted with the very words of God. Likewise, those of us who call ourselves Christians, our greatest advantage is having the word of God. Psalm 147, verse 19 says, He declares his words to, Jacob's, to Jacob, he, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. Paul did come back and give a more full listing of these things in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 is an expansion of this one paragraph that we see in Romans 3, verses 1 to 8. Romans chapter 9, verse 4 says, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But clearly, the most primary advantage for the Jew then, and anyone claiming to be a Christian now, is having God's very word. But it comes with a responsibility. Like Israel, God had purposes in entrusting his word to them. It was a stewardship. And one of those related to others. Isaiah 49 says, God's speaking of Israel saying, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And see, corporately, they didn't do that. You know, yesterday, I could quickly count over a dozen, I stopped at a dozen Bibles in my house. I don't know how many you got in your house, but you know, most people in the South, I'm sure, have more than one. But you know, it's just a book gathering dust if it's not used as God entrusted it to us to be used. And the obligations have to be fulfilled. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Even if it's studied and known, but it's not loved and lived, the Word of God becomes a hindrance to you. It becomes a hindrance that keeps you from Christ, that keeps you from exalting Him. Jesus said in 1248, Luke 1248, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We are responsible for the light and truth that we have. And the judgment is more severe for the more that you reject. Say something else controversial. If you plan to continue to reject the word of God, it may be better for you to stop hearing it or stop reading it because you're adding to your condemnation. It's a scary thought. Think of it this way. It's like a hiker going on a long, arduous, very hard hike. And he's got a very large, very heavy backpack. And in that backpack, he's got plenty of water, enough energy food, and even a spare pair of shoes and socks. He's got the essentials he needs to make a very long, tough hike but it's a very heavy backpack and so he starts off and the backpack is a heavy load for him to carry but he keeps struggling and keeps struggling but he never opens the backpack and so the weight of the backpack adds to his demise and he ends up dying just short of his goal that would be complete salvation the authorities get to him and determined that the backpack was the cause of his death because he struggled with it and it was too much. And he died just short of his goal. And then they opened it up and realized it could have saved his life. Now that may be a silly illustration, but you get the point. What should be a great advantage to us can become a great disadvantage. Likewise, the blessings of Christian religion like having the Word of God, the sacraments, the corporate worship, the accountability, the training, the fellowship, 
All that's a huge blessing. When used and practiced as they are intended, transformed by the Spirit of Christ, without connection and devotion to Christ through the Spirit, all these become hindrances, even traps that hold us back. Think of the example of Saul, who became Paul. Was he not zealous against the Lord with all of his training and background until it was transformed? And then it lit up in truth in his life. Any aspect of religion, even true Judaism or biblical Christianity, can become the greatest tool of the enemy to keep you lost. As we walk through those three groups of people that are guilty before the Lord, think about it, how they progress in the more entrapment they are. At least the immoral people usually know their sin because it's blatant. But then the moral people are even more trapped because they tend to hide their sin, which is worse. But if you're a religious person, especially if you're a real good Christian, then you probably ignore or disregard your sin. Or you may even think, I'm pleasing God with it. That religion can be Satan's greatest tool to keep you trapped. That is why like a baptism like we witnessed this morning is so powerful. It, religion can become Satan's ace trump card that holds you headed for hell, if you don't let the Spirit work, if you don't receive the truth, if you don't live the life. But anyway, so we've heard the first set of objections. The judge rules. Objection overruled. Second, pardon the silliness, but second pair, second set of objections or questions, second slide. Here we have a premise that Jewish possession of the very words of God did not result in the end to which it was intended, that is, in Israel's faith in the Messiah. So, what about our responsibility? What about our responsibility to receive and act on the word of God? First question, you see there in verse 3, what if some of them did not have faith? Second, Will their faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? In summary, what about our responsibility? Now, the next three pairs of questions really challenge the judge. This is really an all-out assault on the credibility of God. It's a question of his integrity. We hear mankind say, Paul... If God's design and intent was for Israel to be saved, and yet some, which we know really means most, did not believe the gospel and died lost, didn't God's plan fail? Was his election of Israel conditional? Weren't the Jews responsible for their sin? Was the result of their lack of faith that broke the covenant and failed to save Israel as he promised? But we hear Paul respond once again by saying, by no means, may it never be. Let God be found true, 
though every man be found a liar. It's almost like it doesn't matter if every Jew that was ever born was a liar, God is still true. This issue, again, is readdressed in much more detail, chapters 9 and 10 of Romans, and especially chapter 11. Well, I want to proclaim to you that God's plan for Israel has not changed. And it certainly has not failed. Those Jews that were unfaithful and did not believe are still responsible, but they did not change God's plans. He still plans to fulfill every promise he made. The remnant of Israel, true Israel, will be saved, and not one of them will be lost. That's what Romans chapter 11, verse 26 says. And I believe the physical promises to Israel about their land, their progeny, their rule upon the earth, all of it will happen as surely as God has proclaimed it. Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament promises, like we celebrate today. You know, Palm Sunday, in the book of Daniel, almost 600 years before it happened, Daniel prophesied that there would be seven weeks and then 62 weeks of years before the presentation of Messiah the Prince. And that was dated from the issuing of the order to rebuild Jerusalem. That's recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 1 in Nehemiah. And it's in the first day of the month, Nisan, Jewish month, Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. And it's in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that Artaxerxes issues that decree. Well, uh, um, English nobleman named Sir Robert Anderson actually took the time to resolve all the mathematics of contrasting a Jewish calendar based on lunar cycles with a Julian calendar based on the sun. And he resolved that all the way forward. And it brings him to Nisan the 10th of 32 AD. Well, y'all know what today is on the Jewish calendar? Nisan the 10th, Palm Sunday, the day the Messiah, the Prince, was presented as the king of Israel and proclaimed as king, happened to the day, 483 years from the date that it was prophesied, almost 100 years before it even began from the issuing of the decree to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. That is the kind of sure promises that God has for Israel, and that's the kind of sure promises that God has for us. By the way, you did get a Palm Sunday message. So, <laughs> all right. So, in summary, it doesn't matter what man says. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. Let me just emphasize here, this is especially true for the gospel. We know that his gospel is both effective and efficacious, like it will achieve its purpose. God's word will go forth and not return void. He will save his people from their sins. He will build his church. God's plan does not depend on man. He will accomplish his purposes. 
It doesn't depend on man being responsible. Man's responsibility for his unbelief does not negate the faithfulness of God. Christ did not come. Christ did not live a perfect life, suffer and die and be raised only for a potential bride. He came to get his bride. And he will do that. And not one member will be missing from that perfect bride in the end. So, the judge rules. Objection. Overruled. Brings us to the third set. Next slide. The premise here is Israel's rejection of Jesus was used of God for greater extension and revelation of his own righteousness, in particular for the salvation of the Gentiles. So, the natural objection is, what good is our righteousness? First question, in verse 5, if our unrighteousness actually serves to demonstrate more clearly God's righteousness, what shall we say? Second question, if God inflicts wrath on those who make his righteousness more glorious, would that not make him unrighteous or unjust? So, we see mankind. Mankind says, Paul, based on the above conclusion about Israel's sin, unbelief, and rejection being used of God for greater good, if our unrighteousness puts God's righteousness on display and our lack of faith highlights his faithfulness, how can God judge us for that? Would he be just and righteous to bring forth his wrath on people who just make him look good? So Paul responds, by no means, may it never be. We know that God will judge the world, and how could he if this is true? The Jews knew for sure that God would judge the world. And prior to this, Paul inserts a quote from the penitent Psalm of David, and the context is Psalm 51, verse 4, from David's confession and his repentance over his sins for the murder of Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba. The full text of that verse says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David eventually came to see his sin as first and foremost against God. Although he surely brought evil and terrible harm on Uriah and Bathsheba, his primary violation was against God. But he finally saw God as the righteous judge and creator. That's the issue that we're looking at in this verse. He has the full authority to condemn and to hold us accountable for our sin. That divine perspective justified God in David's own words. So it made any resulting judgment or consequences appropriate. David fully accepted God as a righteous judge. Now, isn't it amazing how this divine view of sin, when we come to see sin as God sees it, that's genuine confession. When we come to judge it as God would judge it, that becomes true repentance. 
And it's amazing how that is such a dramatic transformation. It's almost like salvation itself, right? Like, behold a new creature. You know, all things are made new and the old's passed away. I've told many people this because often people ask the question, how will I know when the confession is genuine? How will I know when the repentance is real? Well, you will surely know it because when it happens, it will be earth-shaking. It will be undeniable. One who is truly repentant toward God is a transformed creature before others. It's, it's obvious. So this objection that God cannot judge us because our unrighteousness makes his righteousness look better and thus would be unjust is so spurious and so crazy that Paul is compelled to insert the disclaimer, I speak in a human way. It's kind of like, by the way, I'm just being devil's advocate here. You know, I know this is crazy, but it's a crazy objection that you have. He was kind of sounding something like Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. He said, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And he will. So the judge rules again. Objection overruled. Now, as we come to the last two pair of verses in our text, you may notice that these two questions posed kind of seem to reiterate the previous two we just covered. It's like Paul is wrapping up the possible objections with a re-emphasis on an infinite contrast between God and mankind. In fact, if we get the next slide, look at these contrasts between Israel, their unrighteousness, and God and his righteousness. I hope you can see it, but in verse 3, you see that they were unfaithful or did not believe. That's contrasted with the faithfulness of God, who was believable, trustworthy. Verse 4, Israel is a liar. God is true. Verse 5, Israel is unrighteous. God is righteous. Verse 7, is our lie. And it's the truth of God. Isn't that obvious that, that there's this contrast vividly presented between the infinite gap between man and God? So that brings us to the fourth pair of questions and objections in verses 7 and 8. Next slide. Objection number four. What about our rights? Question number one, if our lie makes the truth of God more glorious, how can I be judged as a sinner? If we have no rights or free will, then why not do more evil that more good may come? In summary, what about our rights? So we hear mankind say, Paul, based on the above conclusion about Israel's sin, unbelief, and rejection being used of God for greater good. My unrighteousness puts God's righteousness on display. 
And my lack of faith highlights his faithfulness. My lie glorifies his truth. So how can God judge me for that? Would he really be righteous and just to pour out his wrath on me again for making him look good? Paul responds, first of all, this is slanderous. The word he uses is blasphemy. He said, this is blasphemous to even accuse God of this. And so he simply responds, what happens to you is deserved. Your condemnation is just. So, now remember what I said at the beginning. Paul's doctrine was well known. He didn't come into town without everybody not saying, oh, you know that guy, he believes in grace alone and faith alone. You know, and that's heresy. You know, you can imagine the objectors. And I personally think that Paul is answering some of his own objections that he had in his own mind before God brought him to himself. So they could say something like, Paul, it's really arbitrary and unfair for God to judge us as the only hope for salvation is his electing grace, right? I can't be righteous because God has not empowered me to do so. I can't be truthful because God has not given me the power to see the truth. I can't believe or be faithful because God has not given me the faith. If I am truly dead in my sin, how can he hold me accountable and then judge me for what I can't do? And besides, all that I do wrong serves as that black cloth that a jeweler pulls out and puts on the table before he puts a diamond in it. Because my blackness accents his light. So my sin, my evil nature is a vivid contrast to demonstrate and exalt God, his righteousness, and his holiness. Now I want you to pause and just think about this. Isn't it amazing that we as humans find a way to make the truths of God twist to make us look better? Isn't that amazing when you think about it? I mean, this is manipulation. We misrepresent God's truth and twist it to rationalize, make it look better. It's so skewed. Paul doesn't even give a real response. But as you see, just simply says, they deserve what they get. As we enter, think about this. As we entered the greatest week, the Holy Week, and we think about all that happened that week, can't we run to think about Pilate and Herod, for example? Like, why are they held accountable for what they did? Because wasn't that the predetermined plan of God? You know, and what about Judas? Why is Judas held responsible for something? I mean, he was part of the plan of God from eternity past. How is he held accountable for that? You see, those things, now you, we might not see how plausible they are as, a reject, as an objection, but that's because God has given you the ability to see it. Acts chapter 2 verse 32 says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, Pilate, you, 
Herod, you wicked Jews, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God's predetermined plan, you're responsible. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus said, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. What do you say about Judas? It'd be better if he'd never been born. Can you imagine how terrifying that is? He walked with the Lord. You're talking about how heavy his backpack is. You talk about how much judgment he is under. I mean, he spent three years with God in the flesh and rejected it. It'd been better if he'd never been born. But we see that God has everything under control. He can handle being sovereign and still holding us accountable and responsible. I know this is cheating, Carlton or whoever I'm walking on, to jump to Romans chapter 9, but doesn't this sound like the same thing? This is an expansion of what Paul's talking about. Romans chapter 9 verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Does that sound familiar? By no means. Same thing. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 18. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? It's almost like God saying something to what he said to Job after his conclusion. You can't talk to me like that. You're not God. You know, we can cross a line. God wants us to ask questions. God wants us to think through objections, but God doesn't want us to demand answers. And God doesn't want us to twist the truth to fit our, our selfish desires. God is God, and we are not. That's the last slide. I don't know how to say it's more simple than that. God is God, and we are not. That's a fundamental truth we all need to come to learn in this life. There is a God and we're not him. And that may seem simple, but that is one of our biggest challenges in life is accepting that fact. And so now we hear the judge's final ruling. Objection overruled. In fact, all objections are overruled. There is no objection that stands against a holy God. And so this trial is adjourned until next week when we gather for the verdict and the sentencing. And so with that, as I finish, I want to ask you something. What advantages do you have from your past if you were raised as a Christian, if you were raised in a Christian home? Or what advantages do you have being a part of this fellowship? Are you stewarding those gifts? Are you 
using them as God has entrusted them to you as a precious stewardship? Or are you letting them become liabilities that are disadvantages, that keep you from God, that seal you off worse than immoral sin? You know, we hear objections like this where people might say, you know, I just don't believe in election because my God wouldn't send somebody to hell. Well, in response, I want to say something that may seem very controversial, but don't rush the pulpit till you hear me out. I know I got every elder listening now. Um, God is not sending anybody to hell. They're all choosing to go. Man is born in sin, and he confirms it by sinning. Now, I know God is the ultimate cause behind any secondary cause, but people go to hell because they want to. Because if you want to be saved, you can be saved. That's what Romans chapter 10 says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you want to be saved, you can be saved. And I can boldly proclaim that. And I can also boldly proclaim that God will save his people from their sins. Secondly, think about any objections you may have had to the gospel or to God's word. Could you be wrong? Have you been wrong? I'm old enough where I know I've been wrong about a bunch of stuff. And just as a helpful hint from an old geezer, there is a similarity in what I've been wrong about. And that is, think about is what you believe or what you object to, is it more God-exalting or more man-exalting? Is it more man-humbling or man or God-humbling? Think about that. Does what you believe exalt God more and humble man more, or does it exalt man more and humble God more? Real good way to evaluate. Bottom line, truth's intention are not a problem for God. He has no problem. We have problems. God doesn't have a problem. We have a problem. How is God sovereign? How are we responsible? God has no problem with that. They're railroad tracks that stretch into infinity and never meet. So whatever your heart condition, whatever your objections to the gospel, whatever sins that you struggle with that keep you from God, or if none of this makes sense to you and you struggle with the whole gospel, the solution and the response is the same. Come to Jesus. Let his spirit take his word and make it alive in you, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe.